Um, as this season of fast forward is like really bearing down upon us, kicking off next week, we've really been preparing ourselves for it. And Joshua last week uh, started us off by looking at this chapter in Second Chronicles where God comes to his people Israel and he gives them this really specific set of instructions for how to seek him. And then on the back end of it, he gives them all of these promises for ways that he will respond if they do that. So I'm going to read that this morning. God says this. He says, if my people who are called by my name, if they will humble themselves, if they will pray and seek my face, and they will turn from their wicked ways, then I, pro- I promise these things. I will hear them. I will forgive them. And I will actually heal them and the land in which they dwell. This morning, we're actually going to jump forward in time in the Bible. We're going to see Jesus in the New Testament, and he's going to actually be giving us that exact same pattern. He's going to give us this set of instructions and then follow it up with these really cool, really big promises in the midst of it. And as we get ready to dive like really headlong into like a full season, a full month, of distinctly praying for our city. I think it's gonna be super important for us to have a a grasp on what prayer is, like how we even go about operating in it, because I think that's gonna really shape our entire month and the way that we experience it. So we're gonna go to Jesus this morning in Matthew chapter seven. We're gonna let him teach us what it looks like to walk in these things. That's where we're headed this morning. If you've got a Bible, We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, so feel free to turn there. If you've got one of our blue ones that are on the tables in the corner of the room, if you don't, feel free to grab one of those and take it home if you don't have one. But if you're using one of those, that's on page 474. So Matthew 7, and we're starting in verse 7 and going through 11. All right, so this is Jesus talking. He says this. He says, ask, and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will instead give him a stone? Or if he asks him for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, ouch, shots fired, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So that's Jesus this morning. He's talking to us about prayer, and he's got some really important words for us. I think he wants to change us in two specific ways. So first, he wants to give us this new vision for what prayer is and how we relate to God in it. And then out of that new vision, he wants to establish this new practice for us. So new vision and the new practice out of that. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's talk about this new vision first. Important thing to note about where we find ourselves specifically within Matthew right here is that if you look, we're gonna find that we are right smack in the middle of what is kind of famously known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you've heard of it. So if you think about Jesus and what he was doing, he kind of shows up on the scene 
in first century Israel. He gets baptized. And then after that, he starts proclaiming and saying, I, I am bringing the kingdom of God. If you want to see the kingdom of God coming from heaven to earth, I am, I'm the one who's bringing it. So he says that. And then he starts going all around Israel doing just all of these crazy things. So he starts encountering these people who are broken and blind and lame, and he'll heal them, give them back their sight, and they can walk again. And they'll encounter like crowds of like thousands and thousands of people, and he'll take this really small amount of food and then just blow it up and feed these huge crowds of thousands. And then also like the, the most dejected, outcast members of society. Those are the people that Jesus seems to go like straight for. He goes right after them. Those are the people he wants to seek out and spend time with. So that's what these crazy things that Jesus starts doing. But if we zoom out and look at his ministry, you notice that one of, if not the biggest parts of his ministry was simply teaching. Like he was just always, always, always teaching wherever he went, whether it's to thousands of people, whether it's to just his 12 disciples, or whether it's like one person, one-on-one. He's always teaching. And this morning, we find ourselves in one of his like biggest chunks of teaching. It's this moment where Jesus is surrounded by thousands of people, and he kind of steps back up on this hillside, And he starts teaching them and his disciples what it looks like to live within this kingdom that he claims he is bringing. The Sermon on the Mount is basically kingdom living 101. It's the very basics. This is what it looks like to live in my kingdom. During this sermon, he's actually going to touch on like every single subject you can think of. He's going to talk about divorce. He's going to talk about money. He's going to talk about like loving your enemies, actually, instead of hating them. But one of the important things that he, he really hammers down on is prayer, actually. In fact, he's going to talk about it two separate times. One of the times is, is here where we are, and then uh, in the chapter before and six, he talks about it again. So whatever we think prayer is, like whatever our experience of is with it or what we think of it, According to Jesus, it seems to be something that is extremely important and absolutely essential to living life well within his kingdom. And if that's the case, I think we immediately are like, okay, it's important, great, got it. So how do I do it? Like, what are the mechanics of it? What's the technique? And we kind of want to go right there pragmatically. And before we get into that, I think Jesus has this more foundational piece that he really deeply wants us to grab a hold of, and that is what we believe about the God to whom we are praying. Like, what's he like? How do I engage with him? Like, what's the the dynamic between us right here? And as I was thinking about that, I think in my own life, one of the most practical ways that plays out is uh, think about the difference between picking up your phone and dialing up your dad or your best friend, somebody really close to you, and getting ready to ask them for a favor or something, right? So think about how that feels, and then think about how it feels to pick up that same phone and have to dial into work to talk to your boss and ask him for a favor, maybe a shift off, switching a shift, something like that. That's two different phone calls, right? The way you feel about who I'm talking to on the other end of the line. It's a completely 
different thing. Who you think you're talking to has a profound effect on the way that you approach them and the conversation that you have with them. And Jesus knows this about us, and so he really wants to drive home on how you and I relate to the God who we are praying to. And if we look at his teaching, it's actually pretty clear because over and over in the Sermon on the Mount, he shows us that we, as his people, relate to God in the exact same way that he actually relates to God, which is as Father. So if we look at Jesus' words, that's, that is his absolute favorite way to, to talk about his heavenly Father during his time on earth. As we've seen from our text this morning, uh, he actually encourages and affirms that his disciples, those who believe in him, actually adopt this same line of thinking and this same way of approach. So we deal with him as Father in the same way that Jesus engages with God as Father. There's this point a little bit later in Matthew, um, a little bit further on down the line in Jesus' ministry where the disciples are like off to the side right here and they're holed up and they're arguing with one another, which is like their favorite thing to do all the time about who is gonna be the greatest in the kingdom of God of all things. It's like their favorite pastime. So Jesus like sees them doing this again. It's like, oh my gosh, okay, here we go. Let me explain this to you one more time. And then he goes into the crowd and he gets a little kid out of the crowd and he brings him back and he puts the child in their midst and he has them back, back away and look at the child. And in the middle of that, he says, you guys, I, t- I tell you all the truth. Unless you all become like this little one right here, you can never see the kingdom. You can't even see it unless you become like this child seems like this, fa- this father-child dynamic in relationship is something that is so foundational to life in the kingdom, and we see that at work here in Jesus' words. I love it because he teaches this in a way that's like so intuitive for the crowds that are around him and for us as well. So he's going to take the ball and he's going to put it in their contextual court, so to speak. So he's teaching, people are there to hear him talk, and he looks out he sees like thousands, hundreds, if not thousands of men there and little kids as well. He sees, okay, I see, I, I see a bunch of guys here, a bunch of kids as well. I'm assuming there's a relationship between many of you here. I think there's a lot of fathers here. So you guys are here to listen to me talk, but I'll actually ask you a question. So which one of you guys, if one of your kids comes up to you like so, so hungry, legitimately, it asks you for bread. Which one of you guys in that moment is going to bend down into his pack and hand him a rock legitimately to eat? No one, right? Okay, okay, cool. So let, let's try this one instead. So your same kid, hungry again, because kids eat and get hungry again, comes to you again, and he wants some fish this time. He's just so hungry. Which one of you in that moment are actually considering handing him a snake instead? No one, right? I love the the rhetorical nature of these questions, right? Like Jesus isn't actually looking for an answer because the answer is so painfully obvious to us. And Jesus leans right into that obviousness and he uses that to make his point. Jesus is like, okay, so you got that about yourselves, right? 
You understand that you don't work like that? If you all, in the middle of all of your brokenness and your limitation and your just sheer inability to see the future and control it in any way at all, if you guys still, with all of that, know what it looks like to give a good thing to your child when he asks of it, how much more does your heavenly father know how to see a good thing and give it to you when you ask him for it? That's the jump he makes. And it's like, it's an easy one for us, I think, intellectually to make, but when it comes to like real heart level belief, that is like this huge leap I have found in our lives. I was thinking a lot this week about what Jesus is getting at by using this image of a stone and of a serpent. It actually ended up being pretty indicting to me because I found that these two things kind of symbolize exactly what I feel like God is gonna give me when I ask him for something that I need. That when I come to him with something that I need or something that I really want, that God's gonna hear my request, he's gonna acknowledge it, but instead of giving me that thing, he's actually gonna give me something that is either useless or even worse, something that is actually harmful and detrimental to me. So if you think about the images, like if you are super, super hungry, what on earth is more unhelpful to have in your hands than a rock? Pretty much nothing, right? Like that's, that's teeth shattered and gone. And then if you can manage to get it down, that's just like goodbye to your digestive system, right? Like good luck passing that through, okay? And then in the same way, if, if you're super hungry, that's your body telling you like, hey, you're weak, you need to be built back up. You need to consume something to give you energy and vitality. If you're hungry and in that moment you ask for food, what does it feel like to instead be given something that is going to do the exact opposite of that, namely tear you down and rob you of vitality, like being handed a poisonous snake would? And if I'm not careful, I've found that that's exactly what I feel like God is gonna give me when I ask him for stuff. I just feel like he's that kind of God a lot of the time. Jesus says in the midst of that, he's like, look, you guys, you guys, in the midst of all your brokenness, not even you guys do that. And neither does my heavenly father. So don't think that he does. Don't seek him like he does. Don't believe that he behaves like that or feels like that towards you. So it's that new vision of God as our generous father that Jesus really like wants us to settle into. And I use that phrase very intentionally because I think Jesus wants this to become our new default gut level framework that we have towards what we think about God, that you and I just get up in the morning and this is what we think about God that he is my generous father who is just so ready to give. And I only stress that point because I found that for myself and for so many of us, it's just simply not the case. Like I have to reconvince myself of this over and over and over again. I can go to bed in like the best spot with the Lord, so trusting, so intimate, so sold out on that he, the fact that he is for me, and like nine times out of 10, I will go to bed and just wake up into thinking that for some reason something changed in the middle of the night and he is now against me. 
I have to reconvince myself of this over and over again. And Jesus knows this about us. And so he is dead set on you and I soaking in this new vision that God is for us, that he is wise enough to know what is good and that he is good enough to give it freely and abundantly as we come to him for it. So that's the new vision piece that Jesus wants us to to really bed down in. And it's out of that that he teaches us our new practice for how we're gonna start to walk in these things. So to look at that, we're gonna look back down. Go, go ahead and look back down if you're still, still there uh, at verse seven. We're gonna do seven and eight one more time. So in seven, he says this. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And he comes in again, he says this. For Everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So we've got these three images that Jesus uses, right? We've got ask, we've got seek, we've got knock. He seems to really want us to grab this, right, because he effectively says it two different times. Verse 8 is almost kind of an identical restatement of verse Seven to the point where it's almost like redundant in a lot of ways, and that's not bad speaking by Jesus. It's actually super intentionally him like doubling down in what he is trying to get you to pay attention to. So we probably better pay attention. So first, Jesus tells us to ask. Now, something I was thinking about this week that might sound like glaringly obvious to the to, to you in this, but. Uh, The fact that you don't really ask for something from someone unless you really believe that you need that thing from them. That coming to someone and and asking for something from them, taking on that posture, is kind of this fundamental admission of, of neediness and a position of humility to put yourself into. It's you have something that I don't have and I need it. So I need to come to you for it. And we don't just naturally like to put ourselves there. It's a super vulnerable spot a lot of times. This command of Jesus that, hey, you're going to have to ask, is kind of this direct indictment on our self-sufficiency that we just live in and love and breathe. It's that part of us that's just like, you know, I got this. Like, I, I think I understand how this works. I got 28 years of experience on this earth. I've got my crew. I've got my stuff. I feel like I'm, I'm pretty good here. Thank you. And Jesus just comes hard against that. And he says, okay, step one in this whole process, you're going to have to ask for stuff. Like, you're going to have to realize that there is stuff that you do not have within you, but you need and you're gonna to have to come to my Father for it. And the good news is that he'll hear, and he is so willing to give it to you, but you're gonna to have to ask. Next piece that Jesus gives us is this one. He says, seek, and you will find. I love this, this notion of seeking that Jesus uses because it can feel so different from what prayer feels like to you and I. But seeking conveys this idea of like movement and pursuit and like really going hard after something. So prayer in Jesus' mind is not just this passive deal that you and I sit back and do, 
but rather it is something that is like an active engagement for us that requires a real participation on our part. We're actually doing something when we pray. So we don't just like hole up in a room, ask God for stuff, and then sit on our hands and just like sit and wait and expect it to just show up or come knocking on our door. Now we pray, we say amen, and then we go out and we live and inhabit the world that we live in and we seek the ways in which God might be ready to answer and give within the spaces that he has laid out before us in the world we inhabit. So we go out and we try stuff and like some of that stuff is gonna fail really miserably and some of that stuff is actually gonna work, it's gonna be awesome. But the promise in all of it is that in the midst of the seeking, you will find. Like if you ask and then you seek, you're gonna find something. So we ask and then we seek. And then lastly, the, the last image that Jesus gives us, he says, knock and it will be open to you. So if you think about knocking on a door, I hate knocking on doors. Is that just like an introvert thing? It's just, it's like so obtrusive. It's just like, it's violent. And I, it's probably, probably the introvert in me that hates it. Maybe you resonate with that. But I have this theory about knocking and um, there's always a progression with it. So if you're like me, the first step, you go up and you go for the subtle knock, right? You're just using a few knuckles and then everybody's got, Everybody's got their pattern, right? Their go-to pattern. Mine's this one. It's pretty good, right? If you like that rhythm, you can steal it and use it for yourself. So that's my subtle knock right there. If the person is within like 10 to 15 feet of the door, they're probably going to hear and come open and let me in, right? What happens more often than not is that person is way further away than that. They didn't hear my sissy little knock on the door. And so what I have to do for round two is come back with something a little bit saucier, right? (laughs) Like put a little bit more arm behind it, like really lay into the wood a little bit more. And then maybe they hear me for that one. But most likely not, because what happens most of the time is that person who's waiting for you ends up being in the furthest room of the entire house, like at the very, very back. And they're actually in the closet of that room too. (laughs) And so they can't hear you and you're just left outside and you're cold. And nowadays, we just, you do what I do, which is you pull out the cell phone and you just call them up because you don't want to be that idiot banging on the door really hard. But okay, Jesus Day, no doorbells, no cell phones, right? So if you really want to get in and you need to get into this place, what's your next step? You do the, you do the full rotation, right? <laughs> and so instead of knocking with the knuckles now, which can get painful, You go full fist, extra padding right here. It gets you some good volume without hurting yourself. And then you're slamming on the door. If you gotta get in, that's that's gonna be the thing that finally gets that person to hear and come and let you in, right? So that's that's my theory of progression for knocking on a door. Does that that seem like it makes sense? Um, Thank you, thank you. I'm doing a a write-up for it. I'm getting my dissertation and that's my my thing. It might sound stupid, but I think that is what Jesus is getting at using this image of knocking. It's this idea that prayer, the final and most important piece of prayer is actually persistence with it, that you keep on doing it. So it's not ask and then seek and then, okay, uh, I don't think God answered. He must not be about this at all. So I'm just gonna give up and quit. No, we actually keep coming at it. We ask, 
and then we seek him, and then if we don't see it, we come back to him, and we do it again. We ask, and then we seek, and then we go back again, and we ask, and we seek, and then we wait for him to move, because according to Jesus, the door will be open if we keep that up. What's so funny to me is that this part of prayer was always just like the crummiest, like the worst side of it. It's that like annoying, frustrating, open-ended, am I going to be asking for this thing for forever and ever? Is God going to answer in a way that I can actually tangibly see like, yes, this is the answer to it? It's just going to go on forever. And what I've noticed over the last few years is that this for me has become one of the most, if not one of, if not the most important pieces within the prayer process. I found that something actually happens within you like really deep down when you are constantly and consistently bringing something up before God or this whole batch of things that you want or need before him. And as you do that, God meets you there and he starts to shift and shape all of these different pieces of you that you didn't even know needed to be shifted and shaped. So you start to view the thing that you're asking for in all of these different ways. You start to know it more as you're asking more for it. You know it more intimately. Your heart starts to break for that thing in ways that it maybe didn't used to. And then also you start to know yourself more in the midst of it. Like, why, like what are my motivations for asking for these things in the first place? You start to ask those questions and see those things. And some of them are really good and pure, but some of them are like really selfish and need to be exposed in the process. And then in all of it, as you are coming up before God over and over again, you get to know him. You get to know his heart in the midst of it, bringing like every ounce of emotion that you have to him. Like all of the just sheer like anger and frustration with him. When you are asking for like what feels like the 10,000th time and he will not answer in a way that you can understand. And then on the flip side, in those moments where you are sure beyond all shadow of a doubt that he is there and he cares and he's listening and that joy and excitement that that elicits in you, you bear that up before him as well. In the process of all of this, that something happens in you that changes you deeper in ways that are way more lasting and way more important than if God just simply gave you that thing first try. I think he does that a lot of the times, but there's something to be said about the, what happens to you in the process of praying. That's why Jesus says, keep knocking. Keep coming before God. Like, keep at it because I swear to you, the door will be opened. You will see that your God is faithful as you do it. So according to Jesus, that's our new like threefold movement. It's ask and seek and knock. And then we repeat the whole process. As we kind of wind down this teaching here this morning, uh, I understand that kind of relatively simple nature of it. You know, it's not that complex or anything. It's like, hey, think of God as your father. He loves you. And as you think of him like that, ask him for stuff, seek him for it, and keep doing it. Like, that's not that complicated. But I also know that for a lot of us, this is actually difficult in real life because it's got all this baggage and these questions and roadblocks attached to it. 
And as we're getting ready to enter into a full month of praying to God for things as a body, I think I'd be stupid to not at least mention and address those things and, and say that Jesus mentions and addresses those things as well. So when it comes to our roadblocks, I feel like there's kind of two main camps. There's roadblocks of the mind. You know, it's just those logical questions that arise out of prayer. You know, like if God is really sovereign and reigns over like every molecule of this universe, does my asking him for stuff really even do anything at all? Like how does that play into this? And if he knows everything already, then why do I even need to waste breath and time asking him for stuff that he already knows about? Like, what's the point of that? So that's the kind of the mental stuff. And then maybe even harder than that is just the heart-level experience baggage that we have with this, where you're listening to me this morning and you're like, dude, if I have heard this sermon once, I have heard it a thousand times, and I've tried it. Like, I really have tried it. And I just haven't seen God show up in ways that I can measure and say, yes, he does it, he works like this, I have this answer, and and we just get exasperated by that. And those two things, the mental and the heart roadblocks, they come together to be this really potent force that just kind of lets us like throw our hands back and be like, "I, I don't know, God's gonna do what he does anyways, so whether I pray or not. What's encouraging to me because I feel that so much of the time, is that Jesus seems to feel and acknowledge that as well. And yet in the midst of it, he still teaches us exactly what he teaches us. So I said that Jesus mentions prayer twice in the Sermon on the Mount. And the one prior, in the chapter before, he's talking to his disciples and he straight up owns this. He says, hey, here's the deal. When you're praying to God, You're gonna be tempted to feel like you need to use a bunch of big words and big sentences in order to like convince God of what you need. He says, don't do that. I tell you the truth, God already knows what you need and what you're gonna ask for before you even bring it up to him. That's the truth. And then we would expect him to go, so don't worry about it. Like, don't don't worry about praying. Don't waste your breath. It's good. He's got you. Don't bother him about it. But he actually draws the exact opposite conclusion. He says, your father, I tell you the truth, he knows everything you need before you even ask of it. So go ahead and ask him for it. In fact, when you do it, pray like this. And then he gives them the Lord's prayer out of it. And it's so encouraging for me to see that Jesus like straight owns the tension that we feel in the midst of all this. He's not trying to like paint that away or anything. And yet at the same time, he is comfortable with saying, I know it's gonna feel like it's intention. This is how it works. Do it. And God will like show up and move in it. And so I think like as we draw this teaching to a close, my, my hope and my prayer for us as a body of believers here. We've been looking towards fast forward and we're about to begin praying for our city is that wherever you, wherever you land with prayer, like whatever your experience is, whether you are Nashville's most seasoned prayer warrior and like you have got a laundry list as long as my arm of ways that God has shown up and answered prayers and you just like can't wait to tell everybody about it. If that's you, awesome. Or if you're on the other end of the spectrum where you're like, I don't even know if I buy in on any of this. I don't think I've uttered a prayer in my entire life, but I might be interested in trying. 
and seeing how this works, wherever you land on that spectrum, that this morning, that we would let Jesus' words here really land fresh on us, that we would actually believe him when he says these things, that God really is your like generous and benevolent father, that he hears you when you pray and that he is so dead set on giving good things to you. He's just so about it. And that as you and I begin to, in this season, ask for these really big things for our city, as a body, God is not standing far off, but rather he's like on the edge of his seat, happy to listen and so excited about what he's gonna do and what he is gonna give among us. That that's the God that we are seeking this next month. And I want that to be our launch pad as we go into this coming week and as we meet at the Ryman next week. You know, there's this really uh, famous story about Alexander the Great, of all people, that you weren't expecting to hear about him this morning, but here we are. Um, one of his most esteemed generals, apparently, uh, kind of in the height of the empire, comes to him and asks if, if Alexander would be willing to pay for his daughter's wedding. And Alexander's like, yeah, of course, you're my boy. We have conquered the known world together. Absolutely. So he says yes. And then Alexander's uh, chief financial officer comes to him like months later because as soon as this general got the okay from Alexander, he decides to throw like the most lavish wedding that Greece has ever seen. And so his financial officer comes to him and is like, what the heck? Like, what is going on with this? And Alexander sees it. And he's quoted as saying this. He says, give him whatever he asks for. My general pays me two compliments. He believes that I am rich enough to afford his request and that I am generous enough to grant it. In assuming these two things about me, he honors me. So give him whatever he asks for. As we move into this time of, of communion together here at the end as a family, I hope that we dwell on the fact that when Jesus says God is our father, that he's, he's being legit, that we can approach him like that. And more than that, that he is like the richest of the rich. And that in that richness, he sent his son, his most prized possession, his most prized relationship to willingly lay down his life, that you and I might be brought into that richness. In Romans 8, Paul is going to say this. He's going to say, that God, he who did not spare his own son, his most esteemed relationship and possession, but gave him up how much more then will he not also with him graciously give us anything we could ever need? But that's the God that we seek and that's the God that we serve in this upcoming month. And I hope that grounds our time in communion as a family this morning. I hope that grounds the prayers that we pray this month and fast forward as a family. And then I hope that grounds our lives, really, as followers of Jesus from this point onward, that God loves us, he's for us, and he's about giving good things to us. We better ask him for it, because he will give it to us. And as we draw to a close, I'm going to pray over us, and we're going to take communion together. If you want, um, feel free to like circle up your chairs, get with the people around you. In any way that the Lord has already been stirring in your heart, uh, as we 
start praying for our city, go ahead and talk about that. Like, let's talk about what God might be doing and stirring within us. I just wanna open up uh, communion for that, if that's something you'd be willing to enter into. And if, if not, if you're like, I wanna do my own thing, please do your own thing, that's so great. We want this to be your living room. You do whatever you want in here. So uh, we're gonna do that together. I'm gonna pray over us, and then we're gonna exit towards the center, go get communion, then come back on the side. So. Uh, let's pray together. Father, I thank you that, that we can call you that. And that's not just wishful thinking, God, that that is a, a real right that your son purchased for us, that we can come before you as generous father. And not only that, but you are rich, that you give us good things and you love to do it, that you are about it. God, I pray this morning that that would shape us fundamentally as your people. This is just how we would start to think of you all the time. This is what we would believe you for as we begin to move into a season of fasting and prayer as a family. And I pray that you would move and that you would bless us and bless our city because of what you are doing in and through us. So be with us this morning. Fill us with your spirit and do bigger things among us than we could even ask or imagine for. For you want to do it. We know that you do. And so we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your son. And it's in his name that we pray and give thanks. Amen.